Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 16 of Innovation Activists, Designing Healthcare's Future. I'm Reed Omery, and this month I'm sitting down together with Dr. Kevin Johnson. Kevin is an absolute polymath. As you will find out, uh, he's, he's really into everything. He is the Cornelius Vanderbilt Professor and Chair of the Department of Biomedical Informatics and Professor of Pediatrics here at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He holds multiple leadership positions within national organizations. He is in the Council of Councils for the National Institutes of Health and also holds important leadership positions with the National Library of Medicine, the National Academy of Medicine, and the American Board of Pediatrics. His research interests relate to developing and encouraging the adoption of clinical transformation systems to improve patient safety and compliance. He also has developed computer-based documentation systems for point of care. On the side, Kevin is a renowned filmmaker. He is a musician, and he has lots of other hobbies I think that we'll learn about today. Kevin, really glad to have you here today. You have so many interests. Did those begin as a kid? They did. If you had talked to most people who knew me back in, you know, when I was probably four and five years old, everybody was sure I was going to be a veterinarian. So I was the movie-loving kid who had started to you know, acquire every pet you could have. At that time, I probably had a parakeet. I think I had a set of uh, anoles, what people call chameleons. Uh, I've had frogs and lizards and an octopus and snakes and on and on and on and on and on. My parents have lots of stories about all of the escapes <laughs> from all the years that I lived at home. Are you a child of zoologists or where did this fascination with animals start? So I also was an amateur herpetologist and I've raised geckos, which are a type of lizard, all my life since probably fifth grade. And in fact, when I was walking dogs as a high school student, I used the money that I got from dog walking to buy rarer and rarer geckos, which I would breed and then sell to zoos to get more money to buy rarer and rarer geckos. So it was one of these sort of self-perpetuating hobbies. Well, at one point there was this, this pet store called Dr. Pet Center that was all around the Maryland area, at least, I'd probably in other states. And they never took care of their animals well. And so I'd go there with friends of mine and I'd be like, oh my gosh, they have a, a tegu and they call it a chameleon and they're not giving it water, and the thing is all scrawny, and the edge of its, the base of its tail is really thin, so it's obviously going to die, and these are really rare. So I actually went back to a doctor pet center, because the kids there that were, you know, just kids that were selling this stuff, and I said, I'd like to get a, a chameleon from your chameleon tank. Can I get the black one with the gold, you know, lacy pattern? And they're like, yeah, sure, I don't care. So they give me this $3.99 chameleon, which was actually a $49.99 golden tegu. <laughs> I took it home, nursed it back to health, got it to be a, you know, probably about two or three inches bigger than it had been, and then sold it. Bought some geckos. So you were ever the young entrepreneur. Conniving, curious kid. That's me. Where did you do the pivot from biology slash zoology into computers? So when I was in college, I had taken and didn't pass out of AP calculus. And so I had to take calculus again. So I went through calculus and then I took linear algebra. And then at the end of the math series, the professor said, for those of you who've done extremely well in calculus and linear algebra, we actually have a new computer science major. We would encourage you to take it. 
So I went back to my dorm room and my friends and I all agreed that we were going to throw out our calculus books together and call it the end of math in our lives. So chucked them, didn't think about it again. So then we get to chemistry. And as a part of the stoichiometry part of basic chemistry, we had to go to the computer lab. So now as a sophomore, I'm taking chemistry and going to the computer lab. And there's this kid whose name is Peter, who's from the Netherlands, who's working on a game. And the game is called Space. It's not Space Invaders, but it was a very similar and actually hard as could be game that had gone in the equivalent of going viral in those days. Right? Everybody was playing it whenever they weren't doing their homework assignments. And so I looked over at Peter, who was programming this game, and I said, well, how do you do that? And it was all graphics, and they're shooting across the screen, but it was, you had to be really thoughtful about where you positioned your ship, and it was, it was a hard game. And so he said, oh, I'm just writing it in Pascal. So he shows me how he's programming this game. Pascal? Yeah. So yeah. is this the 80s? When? This is 1981. Okay. Yeah. And so sure enough, I just completely enthralled by the idea that you can type stuff in this computer screen and make whatever world you want to make come to life, come to life. So even though I had never played a game, really, I started writing my own game called Hunter. I would do my chemistry work. I sort of taught myself basic and Pascal, and I wrote the other popular game on campus, which was a, a game called Hunter. You're basically shooting fish in a lake, but the trick to shooting fish in the lake was that when your bullet hit the water, the angle of refraction changed, and therefore you had to know how water behaved to be able to kill the fish. And then we went from fish to rabbits to deer. We did a number of sort of your typical animals. Every animal had a different behavior, and people had to just get points to sort of keep advancing up the levels. And then it got to the point where people were figuring out all the animals enough that I wrote animals on other planets. So we made up names of animals. The one I remember is the Zumquat. And the Zumquat had this specific behavior of being able to hide in a bush and disappear on its trajectory until it arrived at its next destination. So you had to be watching and look for the blinking X wherever it ended up. And then you could only shoot it when it was moving. And you couldn't see it when it was moving. So you had to know basically what the pattern was that it was following. And so that kept people busy for a while. And then I did like my first equivalent of what would be AI, which was I was discovering that a lot of people shot in the exact same direction. So they tended to like to go from left to right or top to bottom. And so we started paying attention to the angle at which people shot and the animal's behavior got more difficult if they attempted to take a shot from that direction. So the animal essentially on every level would learn your preferences and become harder unless you yourself mixed it up a little bit. So anyway, that game became a big deal. Digital Electronics Corporation started looking at it pretty seriously. I think I heard that they actually picked it up. I never paid any attention to any of that stuff. Um, and Peter's game did similarly well, so we just became kind of the two popular guys on campus. I then learned that there was a way to actually combine computers and medicine because I did an independent study. The story I didn't tell you is that uh, Professor Paul, who was the head of the computer science department, heard about the work I had been doing with Hunter and told me that I could pick up a minor in computer science. He would actually test me out of the first year of computer science classes based on all the work we had done with the game. And it was actually a really, really easy test, I have to tell you. So I obviously had, I felt pretty good about what I had learned. So I ended up going into a minor in computer science and then as an independent study connected medicine and computer science and learned about all the ways people use computers in healthcare and then I was hooked. You started off in zoology. And then I started killing animals. But yes, I hadn't thought uh, about that yeah, right so, now. <laughs> so, so it's really, um, but you actually went to the, the proper side because then you went to help patients. Instead That's, of killing animals, it was about helping that's patients. Right. That's right. 
you've watched the field of informatics bloom, you've helped it blossom, you've built the largest academic department of biomedical informatics in the nation here at Vanderbilt. Thank you. We're so lucky to have you here. I think the whole nation is, is lucky to have you because you've also, you've trained so many people who've gone out and expanded the boundaries of what informatics can do in healthcare. Where are we on the curve? Are we at a plateau about to supercharge to the next level because of artificial intelligence gains, or are we on a constant upslope? What's interesting about that question is I think if you were to ask three different people at Vanderbilt, they might give you three different answers. If you were to ask everybody in my department, you'd get the same answer. And that just has to do with what people perceive the field to be. From my perspective, the answer is that we have already been on kind of an exponential increase. Okay. And really what started that, in terms of us being both relevant and important to healthcare, was probably the first inklings of Meaningful Use One. Because while people were using electronic health records, they were considered mostly optional in most hospitals. And they were rarely penetrating the ambulatory environment, except for some really forward-thinking places. Vanderbilt happened to be one of them. And in fact, Vanderbilt was going after its ambulatory and inpatient electronic health record, mostly to satisfy some of what we saw as a patient safety concern and things that were being addressed by the LeapFrog group years ago. But when Meaningful Use 1 and 2 hit, everybody started catching on. And we went from a country that had about 13% penetration of the electronic health records to over 55% penetration in the first two years of that program. What years were those? Oh, let's see. Meaningful Use, this would be high tech. Oh, so it okay. would be Obama's years two and three. Okay. We uh, started really addressing a lot of the problems we were having in healthcare using this technology as a part of bringing in these new technologies around that time. And with that time, everybody started looking around going, does anybody have any idea how to use these things? And all of us who were in informatics kind of stood up and said, well, yeah, we can. We do a lot more than that, but we also understand electronic health records. So that was the beginning of the field being really visible, starting to recognize that there were unstructured data and other difficult data types, waveforms, patient data, that were starting to make their way into healthcare. And then with the advent of what people call big data, people came back to the people who are in informatics, now called data scientists, and said, to what extent can you help us to solve these giant problems in healthcare? And to what extent can we be more like banking? And to what extent can we be more like Target and predicting children who might be pregnant before they themselves have even told their parents and all of the stories that we've heard about? And with all of that attention, informatics has become more and more and more visible. People are starting to understand more and more what the field can do, what the field can't do, and trying to use this field to solve some of the new problems that have been created by electronic health records. So it's been a really fun ride. Now, if you were to talk to two other people at Vanderbilt, I think some would say, because they equate informatics and the electronic health record, that we're actually on a downslope uh, and that the yeah. EHR has got to change and the informatics people have got to figure out how to make this thing better. And they might perceive that we have had some failure. Most of us in the field would agree that the way we talked about the electronic health record was actually incorrect in terms of what people are experiencing now. And I have a whole talk about that and I could talk about. And then I think if you were to talk to administrators at Vanderbilt, they'd probably say it's, it's been on a steady climb. I don't know that they would necessarily see it as meteoric the way we in the field do. We recognize a workforce shortage. I don't think Vanderbilt, for example, recognizes that workforce shortage because we were so far ahead of the curve that we are the place everybody wants to attend. 
If you were a very large tech company in Silicon Valley, let's just say there's a company that, I don't know, they might be called Google. I was going to uh, say Schmoogle. Okay, Schmoogle. Okay, if you're Schmoogle, what do you think is the biggest opportunity they have to get into healthcare? What I think Google has discovered, and this is you know, obviously pretty well written these days, is A, it is a fallacy to say that we can't boil the ocean because, in fact, we do have to boil the ocean to get to all of the data that are in the public domain that could be relevant for healthcare. And so Google's ahead because they recognize that they wanted to boil the ocean for ads for a long time. And where Google starts out is to say, we have the ability to create these profiles. We also have the ability, because we have devices in the home, to become the sharp end of the spear. So if Google decided that they wanted to help us with medication reminders, it would be a very simple lift that I could see for them to begin broadcasting out medication refill dates or reminders just based on fees that they could acquire from companies that already have a list of all of our medications, as an example. So I think Google has a, a major lift because they have a lot of the data and they have techniques available to access those data. The fancy word we use is parse those data to make them actionable and computable because they've used that for every web page in the country and images in the country and waveform data in the country already. There are many graduates who are entering the fields of computer science and data science. Yeah. How do we keep them in the university setting as opposed to working in a more lucrative tech field? Boy, that's a tough one. Why is that tough? Well, that's tough because we as an academic medical center or an academic health system used to have an advantage. We had a major concentration of people who were incredibly smart, you know, polymaths to your point, who were interested in spending their time being in a health system and solving the health system's problems. At the time, the health system had a pace that allowed problems to be solved and studied and proven easily in the same location. And funding was relatively plentiful to do that work, both in the health system and outside. We have a fair amount of health system burnout. So it's much harder to imagine at the sharp end of that spear how you're going to actually implement something, get people away from the clinical environment long enough for them to be willing to do change. But even as you get further and further upstream, there's just much more pressure. There's much more pressure now to get funding. People have finally figured out that data has value, which means it's getting harder and harder to get access to data. And accompanying all of that is the fact that you know, the GDP continues to increase relative to healthcare. And everybody would love to see that GDP go down, which means hospitals like ours have to control our expenses and maximize our revenue, which means it's hard to justify the kinds of salaries that these people might otherwise receive. That makes them really easy pickings. They suddenly have an environment that's no longer as alluring, a salary that's no longer above what other companies can afford to pay. In fact, it's the opposite. And as we get busier and busier and busier in healthcare and grants get more and more competitive, a lot of the flexibility part of being in academia, you know, being able to go with your kids on vacation and to get to all of your school activities, really that's gone away. So it's a tougher time. Uh, academics have a much tougher lifestyle now than we did, you know, a decade ago. Is this a potential brain drain? So is this a potential brain drain is a question a lot of people ask. And I think the answer has to be... Let's wait and see. So why do I say that? 
So we as an organization have the ability to partner with Facebook, Salesforce, Google. It can be a brain drain if all we did was say, you've gone over the brick wall, Mm -hmm. we shall never meet again. Mm -hmm. It can actually be exactly the opposite if we decide to make that brick wall porous. So if Google, Facebook, Salesforce, et cetera, were to take those people and allow them to publish their work in national meetings, which by the way, right now they do, or if they're allowed to do sabbaticals away from their corporation, which right now they can, okay. then in fact, we don't really lose the brain power. What we lose is the intellectual property. So what we really lose is the fact that we can be proprietary in our own health system because we will likely end up collaborating with for-profit companies that can move much faster with IP. So we may profit at our pace, they profit at scale at their pace, and it's just a different world. What can the universities learn from the Googles and Facebooks? What could we be doing differently? I would say that if I were a university leader, other than being a chair, I think the thing that we have to actually learn is how to prioritize what we do. It is clear that if you are an academic health system right now, managing data better be your core competency, or you'd better have enough money that you can afford to outsource data management, which I would argue we don't have. And so, number one, we've got to make sure that we retain an investment in the way we manage our data, both our data itself and the people who are required to do the analytics work. Second, I would think we need to partner with these companies and and bring them in. It's a classic Abe Lincoln, keep your friends close, enemies closer routine, which is we have to make sure that Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Salesforce, all of those companies view us not necessarily, my opinion, as competitors, but maybe as what has been called coopetition, right? There's a level at which we will compete. Many of those companies may become health systems if they haven't already. And there's a level at which we will cooperate. And if what we're really thinking about here is putting the patient and the doctor first, we should be able to do that. Our missions aren't the same, right? So at the end of the day, although nonprofit is not a business model, It's pretty clear that we both want to try to make life better for people and that we have complementary skill sets. Google is in the home. It's very difficult for an academic center to get in the home to that extent without using tools by companies like Google or Amazon. So if we can begin to figure out what role we play, what role they play, you can almost imagine a hybrid health system. Uh, And we've heard inklings of these things happening. You know, you can almost imagine that health systems that are really thinking ahead are going to have relationships with these larger industries and share competencies in a way that they are synergistic and not competitive. In the 1960s, there was the space race, U.S. versus the Russians, who was going to get to the moon first. Right now, what's the equivalent? Oh, that's a that's a question that I've actually thought about myself quite a bit. So I think right now the big race here is going to basically be, and and I've sort of mentioned this already, um, how we will integrate artificial intelligence into healthcare. So what do I mean by that? Everybody's thinking about AI. Everybody knows about prediction and machine learning. But what they haven't really done is address the current problems in healthcare. And I think if you want to read, you know, the thing I would recommend people read about this is Eric Topol's new book, Deep Medicine, The Last Chapter. Because what Eric basically points out is that the real race right now is to figure out how to replace the jobs in healthcare that AI should replace without making a revenue opportunity the bottom line for that initiative. In other words, if doctors and patients both agree 
that doctors need to spend more time being there with their patients, being quiet with their patients, learning about their patients and their families and their diseases. Then, in fact, we need to not say, oh, this piece of AI or prediction has actually saved us on average three patient visits per doctor that we can now fill up in their schedule. It has to be almost, we've made enough. And now let's practice healthcare in a way that makes us distinctive. So to me, that's the race. The race I really want to believe we're after is integrating data science into healthcare in a way that actually makes everybody really happy to go see their doctor again. Because right now, I live in this community, you live in this community, we all talk, we all go to national meetings. It feels like a chore. Healthcare feels like a chore for the patient. We, they, it seems like we have more technology and more solutions and less care than we've ever had in this country. You view, if done correctly, and this is where, frankly, an ethical code of conduct might be considered, AI has the opportunity to allow physicians and other healthcare providers to do what they do best in spending more time with face-to-face -face interaction with patients? Unquestionably. I think that if we have prediction and AI in all the right places, and the places where we're currently looking at doing pilots or doing research, that that all can change the time equation for doctors to be spending with the electronic health record or with technology in general. I would then also say that if the higher level administrators value what I value as a doctor, then they will also recognize that that free time should basically be an investment back into the doctor-patient relationship, more than saying, we now have capacity to see more patients, which might be to some a loss of revenue. But I would actually argue that it may not be. It may be a loss of attrition. It may actually be a gain of reputation. So I think we can imagine metrics that uh, would actually be quite a bit more positive if we became the hospital that integrated data science in an intelligent way and gave our clinicians the time they need to be clinicians again. Kevin, as we wind down, we started off with a notion that you are a polymath and for our listeners, letting everyone know that you're a filmmaker and you're a musician and an artist, how do you find time to place the creative activities into your busy life. When I was here starting the Epic rollout and was getting very, very busy, busier than I've probably ever been in my life, the thing that I noticed was I was going home very unhappy because my entire day was email, dealing with retentions, dealing with all of the things we deal with as a chair, and then dealing with a major change management organizational challenge. And every year I do a state of the department address. And I realized that what was happening every other year, except for that year, was that I always integrated some degree of creative work in my state of the department address. In particular, I always took on the persona of someone outside visiting our department and commenting on all of the changes that they've seen from an outside sort of audit perspective. So one year I pretended to be Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump looking at and you know arguing about the extent to which we've been involved with data science in the department. One year, the Star Wars year, I took on the role of C-3PO and R2-D2 and actually read the entire sort of log of the department's success that year. And I've done that every single year. I did Obama for the first year. So the year that we were going live with Epic, I actually didn't have time to do it. And I started feeling profoundly sad and realized it's absolutely essential that I add some aspect of a creative outlet in my career all the time. And so I realized that. And since then, I've never missed a year. 
Do you think that advice is portable to our listeners? Should they also consider adding a creative activity into their daily lives? What I would say about that, and first I want to, if people haven't had a chance to hear Andre Churchwell's podcast that you did a beautiful job with, I would encourage that because Andre and I, I think, share this. We both believe in creative spaces. His was the shower at 11 p.m. or something like that, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Mine is my Saturday morning walks with my dog. Because I can kind of get into this zone where he's doing his thing, I do my thing, and I'm just flooded with ideas. And I typically take my phone and I just dictate to myself whatever things come to mind. And then I sort of put them all back in, in some kind of an organizational structure when I get back to the house. So I believe that that is useful for me. What I would say about this is there are certain people who simply aren't creative. Right. And there's no reason for us to pretend that that's everybody. One of my other favorite movies is Ratatouille. And in Ratatouille, the line that the chef said many times was, anyone can cook. And when I'm always asked about people in healthcare and what we're doing with data and democratizing data, I've always said that what it does is it allows us to say, anyone can help. And what I mean by that, just like in Ratatouille, is in Ratatouille, it was not everybody can cook. So not everybody can be creative. But creativity or a great chef can be found in different places than you and I might imagine. So as we provide access to these data, we need to give the people who believe they have an interesting idea the space to really evolve that idea, show us what that idea is about, and pilot that idea. You know, Vanderbilt's a great laboratory. Van is a great laboratory. And I would love to make sure that at the very least, creative people who are in this region are thinking about a way to take some time, define a creative space, work through some of their ideas in whatever form, you know, make a cartoon sketch of a day in the life of a person using whatever it is you're thinking about so that your idea can come across or write a story or make a video, make a film or build the darn thing. If you know how to do that, use a wireframe, but whatever you need to do to kind of get that out of you and expose it to other people who might be able to help you take that idea further, whether it be at a nonprofit like Vanderbilt or at a for-profit company around the corner, do it. Kevin, this has been wonderful. It's been really a terrific learn. Very much have enjoyed your stories. Is there any last bit of advice or calls to action that you might consider sharing for our listeners? Well, I think if I were to give our listeners one piece of advice, I would say if our listeners are old enough to get a paycheck, that it would be really useful for those listeners to think about going back and visiting younger people who I think need to learn about what it is that we can be doing in healthcare to improve it. I actually did a TED talk a few years ago called Can a Second Grader Fix Healthcare? And I really mean that. So I believe it's incredibly important for each of us to figure out how to talk about what we do every day, what the challenges are in our job every day. Because not everybody has a doctor or a nurse or a technology person or whoever in their family. But when kids get exposed to those problems, they are very creative. They have not yet lost the ability in general to think outside the box because they didn't even know there was a box to begin with. So I'd encourage all of us to take advantage of what we do every day and make sure we inform the people around us who have an opportunity to change something about the things that we're thinking. Thank you, Kevin. That was wonderful. Follow up with us on Twitter. You can reach Kevin Johnson at KBJ Vanderbilt and myself at Reed Omery. Please consider sharing with us on Twitter your vision for how data may be used in healthcare. Stay tuned for our next episode of Innovation Activists next month. Thanks for listening. <laughs>